When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The names behind the numbers. The stories behind the names. This is the Her Hoop Stats Podcast with John Little. We just need to keep using our voices, you know, have someone like Kathy at the head of this thing that can navigate the business world, you know, invest in the in the women's sports the way that we invest in men's sports. And we will absolutely see a return on that investment. The biggest newsmakers, the best storytellers, the Her Hoop Stats Podcast. Here's your host, John Little. Yes, welcome back into the Her Hoop Stats Podcast. I'm your host, John Little, a sportscaster out of the Dallas area, an emphasis on play-by-play, and I also host an afternoon drive news show with Susie Solis on 1080 KRLD Monday through Friday. Thanks so much for finding us. And maybe you found us because you heard our guest was Cheryl Reeve. Yes, it is. We have been efforting for weeks and finally we made this happen. Thank you so much to Coach Reeve. Can't wait to bring it to you. Uh, Before we do, I want to encourage you that if you like today's show, if you like any of the other ones you listen to, make sure if you're on Apple Podcasts, to rate us and review us it's going to help other people find the show and I, I think you'd agree that you know I don't I don't like to brag I'm not a bragger normally but we're doing uh, good work here and, and we're doing our best to try to bring you very interesting content on a week-by-week basis and remember we've got that unplugged podcast coming out in the middle of the week each week now too to break down uh, some of what's going on right now in the WNBA. But let's dive into our feature conversation today with Cheryl Reeve, the head coach and general manager of the Minnesota Lynx. Really appreciate her time. Not only is she a leader in the world of basketball, boy, is she a leader in social justice, in doing the right thing, and forwarding conversations that need to be advanced as well. And 
I learned a lot about basketball here, but I learned so much more about life in getting some of these questions in with Cheryl Reeve today. So I hope you enjoy our conversation with Cheryl Reeve. Oh, thanks for having us on, John. And we're catching you in the middle of the season. I, I know that is tough, but you've had, you know, 10 years to kind of deal with it and figure out how you operate during the course of a season. But what specific challenges has this season? Um, I, I guess we know from the outside what they've uh, on the floor meant, the challenges that you've had as, as far as availability of players. But what has that meant for Coach Reeve? How have you had to adapt? Well, obviously, uh, you know, everything is, is brand new. So, you know, uh, trying to spend as much time as you can understanding each of the new players, uh, understand how it all fits together. You know, each game is sort of a learning process. I don't think we have felt like, uh, we've played our best yet. We don't certainly don't feel like a well, well machine, uh, have experienced some ups and downs. I've had some times that we've played, I think really well, has some good wins. And then obviously the opposite uh, is true as well. So, you know, just trying to figure it all out, you know, um, you know, can we get to play our best basketball uh, at the at the time that it really counts? Um, you know, it's go time now. You know, we, we, uh, we, we dropped a tough one uh, down in Indy. You know, Indy played great. Their, their bench was incredible. Uh, they scored 55 points. Kelsey Mitchell was incredible. Um, you know, those are games, though, that, you know, theoretically those are teams that are that are below you, uh, even though it's on the road, you got to find a way to win those games. So, uh, we're going to find ourselves in that very same situation, uh, on, on Tuesday, uh, Atlanta dream team, you know, that's looking up at us in the standings, uh, on their floor. So we've got to find a way to win those games. If we want to have a chance to, you know, be competitive and, and be a part of the playoff race. Coach Reeve, tell us about what impresses you most though, about this version of the links and what does have you excited? Well, I will say that, uh, you know, from, from the get-go, I know that we've had some injuries and we sure wish we had Kareem and Christmas Kelly and, uh, you know, Jess Shepard, you know, that would be, in, you know, in a healthy Simone, um, but we don't. And, and so what I think, you know, given all the changes from last year's team, given the fact that we've had a couple injuries, you know, this group still kind of, you know, believes in what they're doing. They believe in themselves. Uh, again, we've, we've gone through some ups and downs, but uh, I think they've, they've got a, you know, a, a great deal of, um, you know, fortitude about them, you know, that we're going to keep driving on and, and uh, try to win the next game, you know, put ourselves in that position. So I have appreciate that about them. Uh, they're competitive people, you know, uh, the way that they play the game, you know, they want to win, they have a will about them, you know, finding that collective will, uh, is is the is the key. Yeah, it's the key to success, and you know we're we're still working through that. We're visiting with Cheryl Reeve, the head coach of the Minnesota Lynx, and of course uh, Nafisa Collier has gotten a lot of the press from your team this year. She's an All Star as a rookie, and uh, you got to coach her with USA Basketball a little bit, right? Uh, a little I did. before the season. In what way did she grow? From from that point to where she is right now, where are you most proud of her as, as far as seeing her development, even just in a, a one or two year span here? Well, I think that experience was so good for her, you know, to be around the best of the best, you know, USA basketball and that collection of players, uh, you know, that's always a part of that, though, you know, the World Cup team, the Olympic team, they're incredible. That's the best that our league has to offer. Um, and so Nafisa, you know, by virtue of some injuries and, uh, you know, just opportunity presented itself. And I thought she made the most of it. And you know, this is a young player that, you know, she competes every single possession. I know Gino has talked quite a bit about uh, her motor. You know, she's just on go all the time. She, she's steady. 
she plays incredibly hard. She wants to learn. Uh, she, you know, the big, I think the most impressive thing is the, the transition from being a true post player. You know, not like Amaya Moore when she came out of Connecticut who played some post. Uh, Maya definitely had more guard game to her than she did have post game, whereas Peach is the opposite. She's had more, uh, she has way more post game to her than she does have guard game. And so then, you know, as a pro, being thrown into that fire, you know, we threw her right to that small forward spot and said, figure it out. Uh, you know, it's, it's different footwork. There's different types of shots you're going to get. Uh, defense is completely different. Uh, and so then, you know, we kind of got her in a really good space and, and we figured out how to generate some offense for her and, you know, get her double figures every night. And, uh, and then all of a sudden we had injuries and next thing you know, I got a player at the power forward. And so same thing. Okay. Uh, she's kind of going back to her position. Uh, but the, the WNBA is very, very different than, than college in terms of being a six foot one post player. And so trying to find her way in that. And so she just, she does whatever you give her, you know, she accepts it and, and, and works hard to figure it out. And she's the same every single day. Uh, doesn't, you know, that not a whole lot gets her, gets to her, you know, maybe behind closed doors, you know, around her support system. You know, maybe that she has, uh, you know, some level of emotion about what she's doing. But, you know, her steadiness is something that's so admirable, especially, you know, to find that in a rookie. It, it, it's, it's uh, you know, it, it's rare. And so it's been really, really important uh, to our success at this point in the season. It's not uncommon for players to have to change positions going from college to the WNBA level in order to be uh, their most successful. Uh, but and not asking for names or anything like that. But have you seen it? in the opposite in the past where some players have really struggled to meet their potential at the pro level because of uh, their inability to get out of their own heads as far as just uh, being able to, to widen their game. Yeah, it happens all the time. You know, I think there are far fewer names that actually have success in making the transition from a power forward to a small forward. Uh, that list is very long. Um, you know, there's a lot of player, a lot of players that come out of college that, you know, five eleven, six foot, you know, that simply cannot be post players in our league and, you know, can't find that way to exist as a, as a perimeter player. I, you know, we've had many, you know, you always try, you know, cause it, maybe they were really good at what they did uh, in college and you try to see if they can't, you know, make the transition. So I would say that the, the, the list of success stories is, is much, much shorter than, than the list of the, of the ones that just couldn't figure it out. I understand that must make you really proud of Nafisa then. So I, what does it mean to you? We, we talked about it just a little bit, but what does it mean to you to be a part of the Olympics, to be a part of the uh, coaching staff for Olympics 2020? Well, I think the most appealing part is having a chance to work with Dawn. Um, you know, I, my, my first go around, I worked for Gino. That was incredible. Um, you know, in both cases, you know, each of the coaches you know, kind of allow you to be yourself, you know, bite off as much as you want to chew. You know, um, I, I like that uh, kind of autonomy uh, for each of the coaches. You know, obviously it's, I think for USAB, when you have college coaches um, as head coaches, you know, there's, there's real value uh, if you are a pro coach as an assistant in terms of what you, what you can offer. So I've enjoyed that, you know, just explaining our, you know, our WNBA players, you know, as much as I know about them, uh, just to try to help, you know, get, get things pointed in the right direction. Obviously, Gino knew Diana and Sue really, really well. Um, and now, you know, Dawn taking on and Dawn's, you know, obviously follows very closely the WNBA. Um, but I just appreciate, you know, the experience of tremendous players. It's really cool when you get these players together, how they give of themselves. Uh, they're different for their individual teams for the WNBA, but when they get together with USAB, uh, there's a, there's a real selfless nature about, um, you know, competing for your country, do whatever, whatever is needed. 
You know, in the World Cup, we needed some post players to play the three fours. I mean, Brianna Stewart came off of a WNBA championship, you know, the best power forward in the league. And, hey, you know, Brianna, we need you to play small forward. And, and she went and got MVP of, of the World Cup uh, by playing small forward. So whatever your team needs of you, uh, you know, that, that group, they're so talented. Uh, many people played out of position uh, just in the name of, of getting gold. And so I've enjoyed that. And like I said, just uh, I'm there for Dawn. You know, that, that's what makes the experience for me. And, and uh, you know, obviously, you know, representing your country, you know, there's, there's not much that gets better than that. Well, you got your WNBA start way back in 2001 as an assistant. You know, you've said it was only like $5,000 a year or something like that. When you think about from there to here and coaching the Olympics and all that you're able to do, is it one of those pinch yourself moments or do you ever slow down to really think about how far that you've come in your career? Well, you said way back, huh? Well, way I don't know, 2001. 2001. <laughs> you went there, John. <laughs> I did. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I can't take it, it back you know, now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't do much of that. Anybody that's around me knows I don't do much of that kind of, you know, looking back, taking inventory. You know, you're so you're so busy and trying to do the next thing. Uh, I, I will say that I have a great appreciation for uh, the many experiences that I've had, uh, whether it's the, you know, the uh, the coaches that I've worked for or the, or the players that I've had a chance to be around. Um, that I know is special. And so I, I probably focus more on that and the relationships there uh, than taking stock of, 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 you know, kind of the you know, the, the other, you know, whether it's championships or, or gold medals, uh, those, those are all icing on the cake. Uh, but, but who you're doing with it along the way, you know, that's what I feel extremely fortunate. You know, Ann Donovan gave me my start uh, in the game in 2001. Like you said, she paid me $5,000. Well, not her, but the organization. Yeah. Uh, but she gave me the opportunity. And it's just, you know, I mean, just being in the right place at the right time, you know, with, with good people. And, and like I said, I, my, my first experience in, in coaching was having the point guard, Dawn Staley. Uh, you know, that's, you know, we had a tremendous, you know, Allison Feaster, Andrea Stenson, like, like Charlotte Smith, Tammy Sutton Brown. It was a really, it was just a good group. And so that was my first experience. And I just, you know, instantly fell in love uh, with what the WNBA offers. And I've been fortunate to do it for as long as I've been able to do it. Well, instead of going way back, let's go way forward now, because <laughs> because it, you were just on the forefront and of um, uh, saying that, that this game can be so much more uh, for a variety of reasons and in a variety of ways, um, especially uh, with the with the new era we're going in with a, a new commissioner. What are the main things that need to happen over the next five years to grow this game? Well, well, I think that, you know, that by virtue of the WNBA being around for more than 20 years, we're seeing the, the overall growth uh, of the actual game on the court. Uh, the quality of players uh, continues to, to be on the rise, and that's going to continue to happen. So we have to make sure uh, that our, our product is, is getting exposed to, to young players. Uh, so being around and being uh, more prominent. Uh, in the lives of, of, of the future of the game, which is these young players. Uh, we're losing a lot of players to, uh, a lot of young players to volleyball. Uh, and so how can we, you know, uh, kind of, you know, uh, shift that, that narrative back to, to basketball? And I think it's more about, um, you know, the opportunities uh, to, to play professionally. You know, it's got to become uh, a little more uh, appealing experience, I think, overall. I think the way that you do that, uh, one, I think we need expansion. I think we need to be in more cities. Uh, and then obviously the experience of the players when they are playing, um, you know, not having to go overseas, I think I put it the, near the top of the list that, uh, you know, we've got to make a move towards that. Um, and then I think, you know, part of making all this happen, and this is going to be, you know, tops on, I think, Kathy Engelbert's plate is, 
you know, the business side of this, of the sport, you know, this is, uh, we're, we're you know, going to strike while the iron's hot. And, and I think that we're hot as a league. I think that, uh, you know, uh, societal reform, uh, is happening. Uh, even though you look around a little bit and you go, no, it's not. Uh, I think that there are more corporations that are interested in, um, you know, being a part of social responsibility. And so that's, that's an area that we need to continue to, um, you know, right now be a part of, uh, diversity and inclusion and we need more sponsorship dollars. Um, and, and that's, that's the way, that's the path, you know, this has got to become, you know, a, a business that's, that's, uh, thriving. Uh, and then obviously I think the exposure, you know, look at the data on ESPN, uh, CBS sports network, you know, the folks that are putting the game on, they're getting a return on their investment. Uh, there was a return on the investment in the all-star game for the sponsorships, uh, that, that were, uh, engaged in. So, um, we, we just need to, you know, kind of keep using our voices and, uh, you know, have someone like Kathy at the head of this thing that can navigate the business world, uh, and really make this thing, you know, invest in the, in the women's sports, the way that we invest in men's sports. And we will absolutely see a return on that investment. You've said that media directly correlates to cultural conditioning. And my daughter, um, I have three daughters, and my oldest one is at the point where she's taking these things in. She's she's 10. And she just flat out asked me um, yeah, a couple weeks ago, uh, Dad, why are there less fans at girls' basketball games than boys' basketball games? I love it. And I, uh, I love it, too. And I said, I, that's not the way it should be. But I want to hear from somebody who's there and, you know, is 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 the champion at, at the front of the pack here. You know, what would you say to that kid and how can we make it better for her where she doesn't have to feel this way 10 years down the line? Well, and that's exactly the epitome. Uh, you know, what your daughter said is what all of us as young young girls getting into sports or getting into anything, uh, opportunities are less. And when you do get the opportunity, you're treated less than the boys. Uh, it's this natural societal conditioning, uh, that men, um, are telling their boys that they're more important than the experience of the girls. And it's, it's whether it's intentional, uh, but we just simply do not put the resources in the same way we do for boys at the same age. She could probably look at uh, the 10-year-old experience on the boys' side. They're probably getting uh, better facilities. They're probably getting better equipment uh, than what the girls' teams get. And what you have to tell your daughter is, you know, kudos to her for noticing. And the second piece is she needs to speak up just like she did. And then now you're going to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And so now you have to ask decision makers, why, why is my experience for my 10 year old daughter different than the experience, uh, than these 10 year old boys are having. Uh, and you have to go to decision makers and decision makers have to be, uh, kind of called out on their actions. Now you need strength in numbers. Uh, and so look at the courage. I would, I would uh, tell your daughter, you know, point to the courageous acts of, uh, the women's, uh, national hockey team, um, to Megan Rapino and women's soccer. That's obviously, you know, right at the forefront of everything right now. And that standing idly by and accepting it is the last thing that your daughter should consider doing. She has to continue to ask the questions and push for more and not accept less. Cause if she's going to do it now at 10, it's going to happen to her at 20. It's going to happen to her at 30 and 40 and the discrimination will follow her the entire life. That's what our generation grew up with. You know, she's in an absolutely amazing time, um, you know, being 10 years old and being inquisitive. She has to have, uh, come from a position of power. And, and what I say to her is, uh, you get what you accept. 
And so to make sure that her dad uh, is giving her the same experiences, let's go to these games. You got to put your money where your mouth is. You have to go and support women's sports. Uh, so are you all doing that, you know, as a family, are you showing her that showing her those role models? Uh, and then also, you know, asking the media, you know, where's the tension, where's the attention on, on girls sports. Uh, so there's many layers to this, but, uh, the simple answer to her is that's the ugly side of societal norms. That's the very ugly side of it. And we've been talking about these things for years. This was being talked about when I was 10 years old. Um, at least she has more opportunities than I had. And that came through legislation. You know, the Title IX legislation is what given your daughter uh, the opportunities uh, that, that exist today. And then obviously having a uh, having a WNBA or, you know, having a professional soccer league, you know, th- those are all things that we've made some progress. She needs to know that. But, uh, you know, but she needs to she needs to help uh, propel this thing forward. Anybody else have goosebumps? We're visiting with uh, Cheryl Reeve here. Thank you so much, Coach Reeve, for that. I really appreciate that and look forward to playing that for her. And along those lines, I was wondering about your journey with uh, with social change and being a catalyst for social change. There's almost nobody more uh, at the front lines of, of fighting for women than you are. But it, was there ever a time where you were scared to speak up, where you saw something that, that wasn't right, that at the time you didn't feel like you could speak up? Or is that always a gift that you've had? No, I think absolutely the, the 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 former. In that, you fear retribution. You fear that if you say anything, they'll they'll take you know whatever it is that you love away. And so, I would say that the, my early years in the WNBA uh, really got to me when I saw the the way that some of the WNBA teams were being treated uh, by its own team, by its own ownership. I always talk about my experience with the Charlotte Sting the way that they treated us. You know, they didn't want us in a training facility at the same time as as the Hornets were there, and uh, there wasn't a commitment. There was very much a dismissive way. The resources were not put into the product. Uh, when it wasn't successful, they wondered why. Uh, and so it was the absolute lesson in, you know, uh, misogyny. And, you know, you, you grow tired of it. You see it your entire life. Uh, and so you do get to a certain age where, you know, you say, uh, you're not going to align yourselves with with people uh, that aren't going to value uh, women and, and what we do. And so there are far more, I would say, especially from 2001. And so I don't know. My experience here in, in Minnesota has been has been terrific. Um, you know, but I would say that you know we're living. There's there's been more movement. You know, um, in terms of social justice and, like I said, diversity and inclusion. There's been more movement with that. Um, but I would say you get to a point where you say you've had it. You've had it and you're going to speak about it and you want to shine the light uh, because, you know, those that came before us that fought. I mean, there's so many women that come to our games. Uh, there are fans of the WNBA that tell me that they didn't have a chance to play. They wanted to play, but they were told no. Uh, I often think about the, you know, the six on six because women couldn't handle uh, the physicality of running up and down, you know, a five on five. And so I think about all those things and it's absolutely infuriating to think about men making these decisions for us and, you know, what men think of women and, uh, it's, it's maddening. And so I just, you get to a point, you know, maybe it's, it's, uh, you you grow in confidence with age and with more experience and knowledge, uh, and, and and to determine what the problem is or who the problem is. Um, you know, I'm not going to say we don't have issues today in our own, own organization. Um, but you know, that like, you know, for me, you get to the point where, you know, I'd rather not have a job than be aligned with people uh, that don't see uh, value women's sports, women in business, women in politics. 
Um, and it's just, you know, like the NBA now, the NBA is at the forefront of, of hiring, uh, women. Now, uh, men's sports is the only place that women aren't leaders. You know, we, we can be, you know, president of a university. We can be the CEO of companies. We can even be the president of the United States. We can be generals in the military, but we can't lead in men's sports. And so the NBA, uh, is now at the forefront of, of making those changes. And so, you know, I, I think just, you know, finding your allies, aligning, you know, with those men that do see you as their equal, even though they're much less than, than uh, the other population of, of men um, who are misogynistic and, you know, um, you know, will never see us uh, as their equal. Find those men. And some of those men had experiences like a Senator Birch by, uh, it was his wife's inability to, uh, be a part of, uh, education, uh, in sciences, I believe it was that it changed his world. And he said when, when his, so you got to find those men that had daughters that, uh, they now understand, you know, what a daughter goes through versus maybe what their son went through. And, and you got to align with those, those people and, and, and they help you, uh, make the progress that you're seeking. Cheryl Reeve is our guest here and just uh, some amazing answers to these very simple questions. So I really appreciate you filling in the gaps for us, uh, for sure. Um, wrapping around to something you talked about uh, a little bit earlier with the WNBA, the, the level of play is getting better in the league. Um, and I, I think I've heard you say that you think that the play in the NCAA is getting better as well in kind. Uh, where do you see that? And um, what are you kind of looking for now in a NCAA player that maybe you wouldn't have um, even 10 years ago when, when you got started as the head coach of the Lynx? Well, I think the thing that, uh, that has changed in the women's game, when I think about being in the league in 2001, the games, you know, probably through 2010 were very defensive oriented. And, you know, I remember winning games in the 40s, you know, mm. 46 to 43 in the Eastern Conference championship to go to the finals in 2001. It was, you know, New York Liberty and, and the Charlotte, Charlotte Sting. Uh, the game was in the 40s. Uh, knockdown dragouts, Cleveland Rockers, you know, they defended. And, uh, and so you really won with your defense. And so I think really since 2010, um, if you look at the metrics, uh, the offensive rating, that sort of thing, you know, we, we have far more teams that are above um, the 100 offensive rating, far more teams above. Not this year. This year, if you go and look at that, uh, we, we've, we've kind of taken a, a downturn. I think officiating is a big part of why uh, I believe at this point there is only one team that exists above 100. That's Washington. They're well above. They're 107, 108. Uh, and we don't have any other teams that are above 100. That's unprecedented. I don't think we've had a team, you know, even in that 2001 to 2010 era. Um, so I would say what's, what has changed, John, is, is the offensive abilities of the players, um, you know, in college as well. You know, you have a team, you know, the Connecticut players have long been, um, you know, players that come into our league and, and can play both ends. They, 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 they know how to move on offense. You know, the, the simple, you know, the, whether it's cutting when somebody takes something away. Uh, so you always felt like Connecticut players, you had many, many programs, uh, a Tennessee, a Rutgers that would have tremendous players, uh, but had not blossomed yet offensively because in college it was really about the defense. Uh, so you always keep an eye on, on those things that, you know, that you kind of go Tennessee and Rutgers players probably are going to be better in the pros because they haven't tapped into their offense yet. Uh, I would say college game over, like, like, look at Oregon. 
that, you know, their offense, you know, Kelly Graves' offense is so good. Uh, so you're going to want Oregon players because, you know, they're, they're going to have a pick-and-roll element to what they're doing. Um, so I'd say overall, you know, the, the, the skill, the talent. I also think we're bigger, faster, stronger. We've, we've gotten, you know, bigger through those years uh, and, and very capable. I just had someone ask me, you know, we're talking about pick-and-roll coverage. And, you know, look at someone like a Kelsey Mitchell last night who – uh, she's taking shots that ordinarily you say, uh, you're going to have to make that. And she's taking a 28 footer, you know, moving hard to her right, uh, be, you know, 28 feet from the basket and, and can drain a three, mm. you know? So th- those are things that you go, you know, as much as, you know, like, you know, we didn't play, we didn't play well enough, obviously to win the game, but I also felt like, you know, in some cases the opponent beats you. Sure. And when Kelsey Mitchell's beating you, you know, with, with that sort of, so I, so I think there's, there's players like that all over the place in this in this league. We need we need more teams in this league, um, but I would say that the overall uh, offense is is better. And like I said, the offensive numbers this year are down. Um, and I'll let you, uh, being from her hoop stats, I, I'll let you guys figure out <laughs> <laughs> the data on that. I got you. And speaking of her hoop stats, because we've got a great organization of, at this point, volunteers that are trying to advance uh, the women's game just as best we can. And they had some questions for you. And one of the questions was, all right, so you've got a couple players coming in from the NCAA and and the measurables are about the same and the games are about the same. Uh, But maybe one comes from a program where you don't necessarily, uh, you know, maybe the coach is lesser known. And one comes from uh, a program where they've been coached up for four years by by a Hall of Fame coach that you respect. Do you ever put any stock into into that who has been their coach over the last four years i think you know i think it can be uh an element that goes into you know the full vetting of a player but i i think i would find uh the connection with the player to be more important so the your ability to get to know them and it's not easy um you know you you don't get enough experiences you know obviously there's ncaa rules that sort of thing um, so you, you know, you're, you're kind of reaching far and wide and, and finding out experiences. And like I said, my USA basketball experience gives me, you know, a chance to be in the trenches with players, uh, without that, it's much more difficult because until you coach a player, you really don't know. Uh, so you, you know, you look around and you ask a lot of questions, but I think your, your interviews with the player, um, what you find out about them, who they are as people, how they respond, uh, in game to competitive situations, how they respond off the court, uh, who they are as a, as a person, as a teammate, you know, their ability to lead. I think all those things would trump, you know, like, so if, if you have a, a player that was uh, playing for one of these coaches that you talked about, maybe, you know, a legendary coach, uh, but they simply either were not a team player or they were, you know, there was some flaw uh, culturally, uh, then I would have no problem whatsoever to take the other player that maybe would exemplify the things that you want culturally. Uh, so I think it would probably really be on a case by case basis. Uh, I, I will say, you know, uh, a style of play from a program probably influences us far more uh, than just playing for a legendary coach that maybe uh, isn't not as suited as uh, as you would want them to be in, in terms of the pro game. Understood. What are the challenges of being the GM and the coach, or does it go hand in hand so much where uh, you really like it that you've moved into this role where you know you, you get to pull the strings on on both ends? Well, I, you know, I, I will say I certainly liked uh, my life prior to being a general manager in that uh, as a head coach and working with a GM, you know, to have uh, a lot of say, uh, did a lot of the work, you know, really did everything except for sign the contract 
um, you know, it, it, you know, still had relationship with agents, that sort of thing. Um, but now, you know, kind of being the, the final decision maker, um, you know, I don't have as many um, kind of, you know, ears to bounce people. You know, like Roger and I could bounce things off of one another. We were thinking along the same lines in the same way. Assistant coaches don't necessarily think the way um, you, you, know, you would want them to in terms of the bigger picture. And so I have less uh, resources around me than I did uh, as, as, a, as a coach uh, making decisions about the roster. Um, uh, probably the single hardest thing is to uh, to be the coach and to lose a game and not want to trade everyone on your roster <laughs> the next day. <laughs> That's the single hardest thing, uh, you know, because you have to shift back and forth into, okay, what is the mission here? You know, sometimes as a coach and your competitive, you know, your competitive ways can get in the way of maybe the vision, you know, and so having another person being, you know, the one for checks and balances. And I have that in Glenn Taylor. Um, you know, he's not a part of the day to day. He's very much uh, invested in our team and he watches all the time. Um, you know, but typically you have your general manager practice every day, kind of seeing both, seeing both sides, seeing what a coach is going through, also seeing maybe what a player goes through. Uh, I think the most ideal world is to, is to have them separate positions and, um, I don't make any more money by being the GM and, 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 you know, over, over just the coach. Um, I would say the perfect world is, is to have them separated so that you can have checks and balances and, uh, you know, someone else to bounce things off of. I didn't even think about the fact I was asking for a GM's time two days before the trade deadline here. So, <laughs> yeah, if your phone beeps, you just let me go. And, uh, you know, we can uh, we can catch back up later. Uh, but I, I didn't want to get away without um, uh, talking about uh, two more things. And one of them was that, uh, again, our staff did a great job of talking about and, and kind of compiling some data on longevity for coaches in the WNBA. And it's just, it, it's, it, I guess you could kind of look at it as a sad situation or, uh, or whatever, but you're, you're completely on the other end of that thing. Um, having been such a, a longtime coach there in Minnesota, yet the league average is like three to four years or something like that, and even less for some programs. Why do you think that longevity, uh, staying in one job for a decade like you've done, is so rare in the W? Well, you know, because it's pro sports, and, and you know, there's a – you know, there, there's less of an appetite for not being successful um, in pro sports than there is, say, in college sports. You know, college sports, you're you're always looking at a five to seven year deal, whereas in WNBA in particular, uh, you're looking at you know one and two year deals. Sometimes you know a third, which is an option for the for the franchise. So it's a much shorter term thinking, um, and I think it's it's um, you know that mindset because. You know, in the WNBA, you can't get caught up paying coaches um, that aren't coaching like they do in the NBA. NBA is going to sign somebody for five years and going to pay them, you know, $40 million. And they're going to cut them loose after two years and they're going to pay that guy and they're going to pay the next guy. <laughs> in, the, in the WNBA, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have the resources for that. And so, um, you know, you have, to, you have to produce much more quickly. I would say in my situation, it's a product of some of the shortcomings of the franchise before I got there. Uh, accumulated a few number one picks. Uh, we earned the number one pick in my first season in 2010. Put them all together. You have a dispersal draft uh, for Rebecca Brunson. You trade for Lindsey Whalen. Um, and, and it's the perfect storm. And you have an incredible group of, of people uh, who happen to be you know, tremendous players, some of the best all time uh, at their position. And 
they were in their prime. And so I was lucky from a timing standpoint to be there at that time uh, and to, you know, to be a part of, you know, an eight year run, historic eight year run, you know, four championships in seven years. Uh, some of the things that we did, you know, we, we won 25 games out of 34 regularly with that team. You know, I remember, so 2014 was, was the only season um, in that stretch that we didn't make it to the finals. And, uh, you know, outside of the, you know, that was through 2017. And, and we won 25 games that year. It's just that Phoenix Mercury was absolutely incredible uh, winning 29 games that year. Their, their, their offense was incredible. Their defense was incredible. Uh, and that was a down year for us. We won 25 games in a down year. So, um, yeah, so I was just, you know, again, fortunate at the right place at the right time. Uh, everybody wanted to, to be there and, and, you know, compete together. We enjoyed every second of it. And uh, I would say that's why, in my case, uh, I've been able to, to, to be in one place for so long. And Coach Reeve, I would be remiss if I uh, let you go before talking about your family. And I know better than this bear trap. I've learned that how do you balance family and work is is uh, it can be a negative question right now. Although I do, although I do get asked it quite a bit. I, I did want to ask you because I, I know you've got a as a philosophical person and somebody who thinks through these things. How do we raise a son these days? And I've, I've had this thought, if we have an oops baby in our family and it turns out to be a boy, you know, our first boy, how do I even <laughs> do that these days? And, and you and Carly are faced with that challenge. What is, what is your philosophy on that? Well, first, I would say, if, as long as we ask men the same thing about how they manage, uh, you know, their, their work and, and their family life. Um, and, you know, you answered in that you, you know you're thinking about it for yourself as well. Um, as long as it's not only my role, um, as a woman, uh, to be responsible for my family and make sacrifices. I think that's what happens to women so much. Not to say that you're suggesting that I would say for me that, um, you know, the, the, the I don't have work life balance. <laughs> I am not good. Uh, when I am in season, uh, it is very difficult, uh, as you mentioned, being a general manager, uh, head coach. And so what you need is a supportive family in that situation, understanding, you know, that maybe when I get back from a road trip, um, maybe I'm not as up for going to the park or, or whatever. But I also try to uh, check myself and say, I need to do this uh, because I need balance. My team needs for me to have balance in my life. And so I try, I go back and forth with that. I try to, I try to recognize those moments. Um, you know, this season's probably been a little more difficult than maybe in, in years past. Um, you know, to your question about, you know, how do you raise a boy? Um, that's an incredible question. And I hope that you have the chance because I think you'll be somebody that, that gets this, that we have to, to point out to boys, uh, exactly what I was talking about with conditioning. So with my son, Oliver, our son, Oliver, uh, from the beginning, gender neutrality is is something that we we put at the top of our list. the The color of his room was not going to be blue. Hmm. Um, if it was a girl, it was not going to be pink, because we don't want the the societal conditioning that goes on. I mean, just even you know, there are things that my son likes that are labeled as boys. When you go to Target to go buy, uh, like he liked the trolls. He loves the the movie The Trolls. Yeah. But when you go to a Target, for example, and it's not Target's fault, it's, that's, you know, that's where I shop, but the, um, you can't find – Trolls is in the girls' section, mm. not in the boys' section. Now, we're, that's not going to keep us from buying it, um, 
you know, but, but just things like that, that, you know, societally, you know, we, we condition a girl and a boy with this as to how they should think, what color they should like. Um, you know, and, and so my son loves pink. He loves purple. He loves green, you know, yellow. Um, and, and we just want to make sure that, um, you know, that he's not uh, going to be told by society what he's into. He loves superheroes, but he loves the female superheroes. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's just been really, really cool because, you know, this is a kid who's um, he doesn't care that somebody's telling him he, he's supposed to like Superman more than he likes Wonder Woman. Uh, he's unfazed by that. And I hope that continues. I, I, I worry about the day that someone tells him. Um, actually we, we had, we had a family member, uh, we were at a, at a, you know, kind of a, you know, a weekend birthday party. And, uh, I think Oliver, he, he's really into mermaids and he had a rainbow colored mermaid and maybe there was another boy that was in the vicinity playing with it. And his dad told him, get out of there. You're not going to play with that. That's not, that's not for boys. Mm. Um, and so that's what we're fighting against, right. <laughs> From yep. a societal standpoint, um, because somebody conditioned that father, uh, to tell him what was masculine or, you know, what was okay for a boy to do. Uh, so I would say that, you know, make sure that, you know, that, that he, that the boy that you raise, you know, has, is aware of the opportunities. If he has more opportunity, uh, to help, uh, his sister, you know, create more opportunities for her so that they're equal to see them as equal. And that's one of the hardest things in life because society tells them differently. So what, you know, the battle is, is, you know, the battle is real. Um, you know, my, my son is going to have more opportunities, uh, than your daughter just because, and it's, it's, it's simply not fair and we have to keep fighting the fight and, you know, shining the light, so to speak. And, and, uh, and not, not, not sit idly by. And that's what I ask for, for your daughter is continue to ask the questions, uh, and be bold, uh, and courageous. And, and with that, you know, comes some risk, uh, but it's worth it. You know, the, the fight is worth it. Coach Reeve, I can't thank you enough for your time today. I learned a lot. I know everybody listening has as well. So thank you so much for taking the time and uh, continued success in your career. Thanks so much, John. Appreciate it. That is Cheryl Reeve, the head coach of the Minnesota Lynx here on the Her Hoop Stats podcast. Thank you so much to Cheryl for joining us. Wasn't that just awesome? Well, we've got plenty more coming up for you this week, including another unplugged version of the Her Hoop Stats podcast that should be coming out the middle of the week. If you hadn't noticed, we're also releasing a play-by-play broadcast that we did of the Dallas Wings hosting the Las Vegas Aces on Saturday, and there is a lot in that play-by-play broadcast than just us talking about the actual game. We we talked to about five different people from each side in that one, three players from each team, both the head coaches and uh, others from the team as well. So you're going to learn a lot about the Wings and the Aces by listening to that one too. And if you like that broadcast, make sure to let us know. And hey, if you've got any feedback for us, positive, negative, uh, a little bit of both, Email us, podcast at herhoopstats.com, podcast at herhoopstats.com. Big thanks to everybody involved in this one, including the head coach of the Minnesota Lynx, Cheryl Reeve. The announcer on the Her Hoop Stats podcast is Susie Solis. Our music, as always, by the great Jared Deck. You can find his music at jareddeckmusic.com. And the executive producer of the Her Hoop Stats podcast is Aaron Barzilai. I'm John Little. Until next time, reminding you that at the Her Hoop Stats podcast, we are unlocking better insight about the women's game. Hoop Stats. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on Carol. She's more focused on hitting a high note than the car in front of her. 
Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.